It says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. On January 16, 1991, President George H.W. Bush announced the invasion of Iraq. In his speech, he outlined the ferocity of the enemy, the suffering of the innocent, and the valiance of the American troops who joined the battle. He said, no president can easily commit our sons and daughters to war. Ours is an all-volunteer force, magnificently trained, highly motivated. The troops know why they're there. Our goal is not the conquest of Iraq, It is the liberation of Kuwait. It was a costly fight, of course, demanded much of those volunteers. In our text tonight, Paul points our way and he says, there's a battle going on and the Lord wants you to join it. We have all we need for victory, but it's a good reminder that the Lord's army is made up of those who volunteer. Verse 10, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. You know, we've come a long way from chapter one, verse one of this letter. Through those passages, Paul took us from eternity past to eternity future. He describes where we've been, where we're going. He's talked about culture and personality. He's talked about the spiritual wealth we have, the grace and the power and the protection and the enabling. He just finished describing day-to-day Christian life in the home, in the workplace, in our relationships. And now he says, finally, he's closing down his message to this beloved congregation that he hadn't seen in so many years. It's a term that doesn't just mean I'm at the end here. The term finally here means for the remaining time or from now on. And so he wants to drive home a bunch of points here at the end of the letter. And having heard all that we've heard, okay, now, from now on, Here's what I have to say to you. These are marching orders, and they begin with, be strengthened by the Lord. Life is difficult. Most of you know that very acutely. We face hazards and challenges of one kind or another. But you can be strong as a Christian. In fact, more than that, you are supposed to be strong, spiritually strong, mentally strong, emotionally strong, more and more capable as a believer. You may not be physically strong. You may face what look like insurmountable odds or difficulties or or discouragements, those sorts of things, but God says his plan for you is strength where it matters, spiritual strength, mental toughness, strength in your heart. That doesn't mean we won't struggle. We will, we're guaranteed it by our Savior, But God's plan for you is strength. 
that you'd be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit season after season. Or in this analogy tonight, that you'd be like a strong soldier taking ground in the most important battle of all time. And we see he's the one who does it. You don't strengthen yourself. And that's something we need to remember anytime we pull a sort of Christian self-help book off the shelf. A lot of good books, a lot of not good books. A lot of books that mean well but miss the point. A lot of teaching out there that effectively says, it's you, you're biting down on your teeth as hard as you can, you have to accomplish it, you have to be better, you have to climb higher, you have to, you have to, you have to. But it's God who strengthens you. You don't strengthen yourself. Be strengthened by the Lord, Paul said, and his vast strength. The strength that Paul said back in chapter three, verse 20, he says this strength is, this power is at work in you right now if you're a Christian. So be strengthened by that power. Let it operate in your life. Okay, well, how do we receive this strength? How does that happen? Paul's telling me to do something. He says, be strengthened by the Lord. Okay, how do I do that? How do I cooperate with God's desire to increase my spiritual capability as I walk with him? Verse 18 in this chapter will explain that prayer is one significant way. Through prayer, we are strengthened and we help strengthen others. A really good thing when you pray for others and when you ask them to pray for you. Prayer matters. Prayer for each other matters. Prayer as a group matters. And we need to take it seriously. We're made strong by walking with God. That's been such a, a major point of this letter that we walk worthy with God and as we walk with him, God is then able to do all sorts of things that he really wants to do in our lives. He's able to fortify us and do his powerful cosmic work through our lives. He says, okay, as you walk with me, I take your life, I take your experience, I take your heart and I start transforming things and doing things and operating things to put you on display before the cosmos to show my grace, my power, my goodness, my plan. And so as we walk with God in the city square, in the kitchen at home, on the kids' soccer field, the Lord can strengthen us as he fulfills his callings through us in all of those arenas. The book of Isaiah says those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. And so you wanna be made more strong in the Lord? I do. We wanna level up your spiritual capability? Trust the Lord. Exercise faith. Remind yourself of what God has said, what he's promised, what he's commanded, and then tell yourself, I believe that and I'm going to do it. The world may laugh, the world may say it's impossible, my own heart may you know, have these creeping doubts, but no, I'm going to exercise faith and say, God said it and so I believe it. And as we do, our strength is renewed. We're also made strong, the Bible says, of course, in our weakness. His strength is in fact made perfect through your weakness, your physical weakness, your you know, temporal weakness. And what we learn is that as we surrender to God's will and as we allow him to have his way, his grace operates in us and we become stronger and stronger. Paul's one of the strongest Christians to ever live. And he's a guy who's bobbing in the sea every now and then, getting robbed, he's in prison, he's getting beat, he's getting stoned, maybe lions are trying to eat him. He's one of the strongest Christians that we've ever heard about. Verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Spiritual strength is not just so that we can feel good or look good. 
Uh, we used to watch Survivor. I don't know how many of you were familiar with Survivor. It's been on for, I think, three or 400 years now. But uh, we used to watch Survivor. Every season back when we watched it, there were always contestants who had uh, gentlemen, they were never gentlemen, but there were always fellows who had perfectly sculpted physiques, right? But when it came to dragging the heavy box out of the surf across the sand onto a platform, when it came to physical challenges where they had to do tug of war, they had to kind of grapple with other people, it became very clear that for many of them, their muscles were for looks, not for labor. They looked strong, they weren't strong. God's strength is for application, not for appearance. We need to be strong, to really be strong, because we have a very powerful, highly organized, savagely motivated adversary. This is no tin pot tyrant. He's the ruler of this world. And he has declared war on the Lord and all of his people. How powerful is the devil? Consider, we, you know, we get a good look at what he was capable of, what he did, how he be acted in the book of Job. Consider what he did to Job. Now, of course, God was overseen. God gave him a certain amount of leash. He wasn't operating outside of God's will. The Lord said, here's what you can do and you can't do anything more. But once he was given permission, what did he do? The devil exerted power over people groups, inciting them to violence. He sent them as a, as a raiding party to go and rob. He exerted power over the elements, bringing a hurricane to Job's house. He exerted power even over Job's body, his very health. Not every storm is from the devil. Not every sickness is from the devil. Not every act of violence is uh, the devil himself inciting people. Our sin natures can do that plenty. But the Bible gives indication that the devil has some significant power. There's some indications that when Jesus was crossing the Sea of Galilee those times and big storms would arise, it was the, it was the devil trying to stop the Lord from doing his work. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great preacher of yesteryear, points out that Satan has enough power and enough pride, and this is important, enough of a winning record that he had total confidence when he came up against the Son of God himself. Now, there is no contest between Jesus Christ and the devil, but pull back for a minute and remember that story from the Gospels. The devil came at him with confidence. He, 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 he was coming, he, he went hard to the paint, right? Like he, he says, yeah, I'm here. I'm gonna come at you. And I'm gonna come at you again and I'm gonna come at you again. And, and Dr. Lloyd-Jones points out one reason is because until that moment, in one sense, the devil was undefeated. Adam and Eve took him down. David took him down. Moses took him down. Everybody at some point in the word of God was taken down by the work of the devil in some regard, right? And so he has a pretty good fight record <laughs> as, far as, as far as the contest goes. But, but with all that said, he is no match for the Lord, not even close, not even funny. There's no question who will emerge victorious in this cosmic struggle that Paul is talking about. In fact, the war's over. The war's already won. It's been decided. History has been written in advance, right? And now the Lord God turns to us, his people, and he says, okay, 
Here's what I've done. Uh, I defeated sin and death and the grave. Hell is created for the devil and his angels. He is going in there. There's no question about it. The devil cannot overcome my plan, my work, my power. And then he turns to us and he says, so take my armor, take my weapons, take my battle plan, and then you can share my victory over this enemy. And then my power can envelop you so that the devil cannot stand against you, so that he cannot conquer you, so that he cannot devour you. It's a pretty good deal. Thanks to God, you can stand against the devil's schemes. That's the whole point of these verses. Schemes, by the way, is a word we get method from in the Greek. What are the devil's methods? There are a lot of them. And he's an expert in his craft. He's been refining his terrible work for thousands of years. His attacks come in the form of things like persecution against God's people or pollution of our minds and culture. He attacks us with fear and deception and temptation. He conspires to get you angry at God for one reason or another. He sends wolves into the church, spies among friends to do his terrible work undercover. He has many effective methods. That's why you and I need the armor of God. There's that great moment in Captain America Civil War where Iron Man and Cap are punching it out as they do. And Tony Stark is just getting thrashed. What happens? The voice in his suit calls out, you can't beat him hand to hand. I love that moment because it's true. And for all of Tony Stark's swagger and wealth and all these things, you can't beat him hand to hand. So what, is, what, is, what has to happen? Tony Stark needs his armor to analyze the fight pattern and harness the armor's fantastic power in order to defend himself. And that's exactly what he does. So the devil is real. And in in one sense, he's very scary, but the New Testament is absolutely clear. If you're a Christian, you do not have to be afraid of him. He has no power over you because God has given you his armor, his power, his revelation, his strategy, his methods, so that we can stand. Stand here doesn't just mean be up on your feet. It's a term that can mean hold out in a critical position on the battlefield. But as one commentator points out, standing firm in this spiritual sense, it, does, it requires effort. It doesn't happen automatically. We have to understand what's going on on the spiritual level. We have to understand what's really happening behind the scenes and then take our position in the fight and take that duty seriously and understand what our role to play is. We need to recognize that the devil's plan is to devour anyone he can. He's seeking who he can devour. His life goal, his job, his hobby, his side gig, his five-year plan is to destroy your life. Now, maybe Satan himself does not have you on his checklist, you specifically. He's busy and He's busy, you know, with people that are more important than me. But he has a lot of resources and minions and spiritual beings who are all unified with him in this effort. And so spiritual warfare is coming our way, and that is their plan. That's all they do. They don't take vacation, right? They don't, uh, they don't you know, have this other job over here that they're, you know, 
spiritual warfare for them is not just like, well, I drive for Uber sometimes. And they're like, no, this is what I do. This is my career path. This is my plan. This is my excitement. All I do is come after God's people and try to devour them, destroy them, delay them, derail them. And so the, the devil has a lot of resources at his disposal, spiritual beings, wicked culture, uh, the people of this earth, they were held captive to do his will. But we have more resources than he does. We have greater resources than he does. We have the splendid armor of God, the very armor that God wears himself. But it will not help us if we don't put it on. I was reading a sad story today. It's from a few years ago. There's a police officer in Georgia. His name is Tim Smith. His department, of course, issued him a bulletproof vest, but for what, whatever reason, I don't know, he decided I don't, I'm not gonna wear the vest. And so he responded to a call about a man with a gun. And he found the guy, he found the car, he pulled the car over, the guy came out shooting, shot Tim Smith in the chest. His chest was unprotected, and now Tim Smith is dead. And we read that story and we just think, put, put the thing on, man. Put the vest on. And who knows, you know, I mean, I, I don't mean to criticize Tim, but that's a terrible tragedy, and in, it might have been a, a needless tragedy. Verse 12 says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. This is such an important verse because humans are not your enemy. They just aren't. They feel like they are a lot of times, but they are not your enemy, not really. It's the power behind the bad boss, the schoolyard bully, the deadbeat dad, the political antagonist. That's the problem. And we see great examples of this in the Bible. Think about Abigail and Nabal, terrible husband, just the worst. Think about Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, terrible boss, terrible king, absolute worst. Think about Paul and Felix, terrible situation, terrible judge, unjust. But for the believer in all of those stories, the other person was not a hated enemy, in fact, much the opposite. The believers in those stories understood there's a spiritual situation unfolding. And I'm not happy about my circumstances, but I understand that the person across from me is not my enemy. There's something greater going on, and I trust the Lord, and I'm gonna orient my thoughts and my behaviors and my reactions according to how I think the Lord would want me to react. Even if that means mistreatment for me, even if that means injustice towards me, even if that means that person seems to get away with doing bad things. Our fight is with this dedicated group of demonic forces talked about in verse 12. Paul describes it as close-up, hand-to-hand grappling, wrestling with a unified coalition of foes who have colonized every corner of this world. Verse 13, for this reason... Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. I like this a lot because what do we see here? In verse 11, Paul says, hey, Christians, here's your armor. And we might think, oh, okay, great. I'll hang that next to my raincoat in case I need it. And then in verse 12, Paul says, uh, take a look right outside your door here at this battlefield and the enemy troops headed your way. And then we get to verse 13 and Paul again says, so here's your armor. You're gonna wanna put it on. Right, he's just driving this home. He wants us to understand we're in this fight. This is what's happening. This is what is really going on. This cosmic warfare that's happening. It's been decided, the victory's won, but the, the
The fight is still on. For the second time, Paul calls it the full armor of God. We need every piece. It won't do to pick and choose. This armor is sufficient to defend our lives and gain ground against our enemy, to keep us strong, to make us stand, all of that stuff, but we need it all. Uh, I'm not a sports fan I'm, and not a football fan, but over the holidays, we were at you know, extended family, I saw a uh, football game or part of a football game. And so during this one play, there's this receiver, and he apparently had decided that he didn't need the chin strap on his helmet, right? <laughs> so he caught the ball, and he's sprinting, and guess what? Someone else is sprinting the other way towards him, and he's hit by the defender. His helmet immediately pops off. Okay, that's not great. You know what was really not great? As the receiver went down, another player's knee went right into his uncovered head. He was missing a piece, a very key piece. Put the chin strap on, man. I don't understand. Some of these guys, they have no chin strap. They barely have their helmet on. And then I love the other guys. They've got the helmet with the visor and the chin strap and the mouthpiece. I'm like, that's my kind of guy. What else can we get? Can I get some bubble wrap around my head too, right? Put the chin strap on. You need all the pieces. Now here we see our orders are to resist the devil. There are those out there uh, in certain corners of the church world who kind of make a big show of talking to the devil, even taunting the devil. I have to agree with Pastor Skip Heitzig who said, don't talk to the devil. It's a bad idea. Listen, he's smarter than you and me. He's stronger than us. He's more experienced than us. He's totally dedicated to destroying us. Don't talk to him. Resist him. And guess what? When you resist him, he will flee from you. He's afraid of a Christian who's living like a Christian. But don't trash talk the serpent of old, that dragon uh, from, uh, from all those years ago. Verse 14, stand therefore with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest. Paul keeps telling us to stand again and again. Christians need not cower, not even in the face of the devil himself. That's how great God's coverage is for you. That's how adequate his power is in your life. Standing means we're stable on our feet. It means we're ready to fight or to rescue. There's not much you can do in a fight if you're on the ground, certainly not in a war like this. God's desire is to keep you on your feet, keep you from stumbling, keep you from getting knocked down so that you're mobile, so that you are fighting, so that you are part of the rescue effort. In these verses, Paul describes our gear. It's a famous set of verses. Based off of some of the terms he used, you can make the case that he's envisioning a certain type of infantry soldier from the time that could do the job of a skirmisher when necessary or fall back to be part of the famous phalanx of defense. As Paul speaks, he makes many references to the book of Isaiah, some directly and some a little bit indirectly, particularly chapter 59. And in those passages of Isaiah, we see God himself wearing many of these very items that Paul lists. And that makes sense because it's the armor of God and he's sharing it with us. But that's a beautiful thing. The Lord says, I have armor, I wear it myself, and now I share it with you. That's a, a wonderful, tender image. We start with the belt of truth. A belt is central, of course, holds things together. Soldiers would hang things on their belt, or I'm sure some of you have heard about, you know, they would wear these long togas or these long robes, and the, have you ever heard of the term, gird up your loins? If you had to move quickly or run, they would take the lower part and tuck it into the belt so that you could move quickly and go where you needed to go. Recently, my beloved $16 ratchet belt broke. 
I I replaced it, Amazon, but like it broke. (laughs) But it was a Sunday morning before first service and I just felt a sickening snap. And then like I heard a piece of metal fall on the ground and suddenly my belt wasn't a belt anymore. It was just garbage, you know? And so I had to ask Kelly to bring me some other regular belt with, with holes in it, right? And, and, but I was having a wardrobe malfunction. I needed my belt. <laughs> it was gonna be a problem. It's the belt of truth, by the way, not of feelings, not of fads. It is God's eternal, constant truth that holds and girds everything together. We need it. It's what we hang the rest of our life on. Next, we see the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness protects us, our hearts and other vulnerabilities. And notice here, it's Christ's righteousness. Remember that. It's, it's Christ's righteousness that has been given to you. That's what you put on, not your own self-righteousness. Paul doesn't say, hey, go make your own breastplate out of good deeds. Guess what? All of your righteousness is just filthy rags that will not do in a battle. You need something strong. You need something that will actually protect you. We are clothed with Christ's righteousness and it protects us when we put him on and when we move in that righteousness. Verse 15, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. Shoes make a big difference in life. No one wants to hike in high heels. The gospel keeps us on our feet, giving us navigation, stability, direction. But you know, I was thinking the gospel also keeps us on our toes because it reminds us of our mission. It reminds us that time is short. It reminds us that every day I can engage in mission and I don't know how many days I have left. Readiness in in this verse means prepared for combat. And so we're on our feet, we're strong, we're standing square. We're making traction, we can cover terrain, it's adequate for wherever we need to walk, but we also wanna be on our toes remembering that uh, we are not on leave, we are not uh, you know, just kind of casually moving through the countryside, we are being sent as soldiers on a mission. Notice, Paul uses the word peace here, it's kind of unexpected, he's talking about wrestling, he's talking about fighting, in a minute we're gonna talk about fiery darts, we're talking about warfare, battlefield. He uses a lot of terms that direct our thoughts toward those dark images. And here we see peace. He's like, no, you're putting, you're putting peace on your feet. It's a good reminder that in the Lord's army, we are liberators, not subjugators. God's goal is to save captives, to reconcile enemies to himself, to bring peace. Right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us first. While we were at war with God, God made a way so that we could be reconciled with him. And now he says, and I wanna do that for more people. Go out and liberate. Don't think of your, in your mind that you're going out to subjugate. We live in a very antagonistic time. That's why I bring that up. Everybody's mad at everybody. Everybody's against everybody else. Everybody categorizes us versus them. Are you them or are you us? And there's all this fighting and there's all this vitriol and there's all this hatred. And that's not the point of, of Christian living. Let's walk in forgiveness and peaceful reconciliation as far as it depends on us because God calls us to unity, not to division. Verse 16, in every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Missiles are coming. Uh, you know, if you, if you live in Israel, especially right now, but for all of Israel's history, it's just, yeah, oh yeah, those are just the rockets that come in over the borders all the time. It's part of life. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? 
That every night you just look up, oh, there's the rockets coming in. I wonder if they're gonna hit my house tonight. But spiritually speaking, when it comes to spiritual warfare, the missiles are coming. Maybe it'll be an arrow, maybe a javelin, maybe something big launched from a catapult. They're all lit on fire. (laughs) Uh, It's coming. But the shield of faith is strong enough to protect us, big enough, strong enough. Paul's referencing a large shield, probably around two feet by four feet. They not only helped you, but they helped the people around you and behind you too. Soldiers would often line up together to create a wall of shields for the group, not just for the individual. Faith helps us and the people around us. There was a Roman battle that happened a little before Paul wrote Ephesians. After the fight, a centurion in that battle counted 220 darts sticking into his shield. Those darts had somebody's name on it. Had his name on it, right? Had the people around him, their names on it too. And they all came into the shield and lives were saved. Soldiers in that time would often soak their shields in water to help protect them from fiery projectiles specifically. And what a great picture. Our faith, right, our shield, soaked in the living water. Soaked in the word, right? Washed in the water of the word. Soaked in the Holy Spirit, right? When the Lord Jesus talked about living water flowing with us at one point, the gospels tell us and he spoke of the spirit. And so we wanna soak our faith in the word of God and the spirit of God. The shield of faith is for every situation, Paul says. In every situation, take it up. Not just in times of obvious spiritual warfare where you're just getting hammered, right, by the enemy and you see it happening. Fiery arrows can come out of nowhere, Maybe you see the archers up on the hill. Maybe there's an ambush set for you. Any good war movie, there's an ambush scene where everybody's kind of a little bit casual and they're joking around and then some suddenly out of the trees, just stuff starts happening. And so we, need, we wanna watch for ambushes, ambushes of temptation, ambush of discouragement, ambush of disappointment. We hold the shield of faith in every situation because we believe that it would be a bad thing if that arrow of temptation hit us, that arrow of discontent. See, I think that's a problem I know I have in my own life is sometimes I convince myself that it wouldn't be that big of a deal to be hit with that arrow of temptation, to be hit with that arrow of discontent. Let it, let it just go boom right into my heart. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that thing's gonna kill you. That thing's gonna knock you down. That thing is going to cause some real problems in your life. And so be ready for it. And so it always comes back to our understanding of what God has revealed. What he says is good and bad, what he says is true and not true, and then believing what he says is true and acting accordingly. Oh, I need to carry this shield in every situation, not just when I'm at the end of my rope, not just when I'm being pummeled by the enemy blatantly, but all the time I carry it. Now, it's no fun to think about fiery darts coming our way, but on one level, if they're not, it's probably a problem. If you're not a target of the enemy, Maybe you're not in the fight. Maybe you've been incapacitated. Or maybe in the mind of the enemy, you're more of a help than a hindrance. It happened to Peter. What did Jesus say to him in that moment? Heartbreaking moment. And Peter came back from it. He said, get behind me, Satan. Peter was more of a help to the enemy than to the Lord in that moment. And so if we are never experiencing spiritual warfare of one kind or another, It's probably a bad sign. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Expositor's Bible commentary says, take is really receive or accept. The previous items were laid out for the soldier to pick up. The helmet and sword would be handed to him by an attendant or by his armor bearer. 
And so the Lord provides all these resources, of course, but in a special way, he hands you salvation. He sends the spirit, take them and put them into operation and walk in the provision you've received. Now, if you're a Christian here tonight, you are saved. You've got the helmet. You know it works. Marcus Barth writes, we go into battle and stand the heat of the day in full confidence of the outcome for we wear the same battle proven helmet which God straps on his head according to the original meaning of Isaiah 59, 17. With this armor, we receive a sword, the word of God. Paul doesn't use the word logos here. We're familiar with that term, but he uses a different word, rima. Uh, forgive me, any of you who actually know Greek, my pronunciation's not legitimate. But Jesus Christ is the word, right? He's the logos. He's right there beside us on the battlefield. And then in our hands, we have the rima, which is the word of God that has been said and has been revealed in, to us in the inspired canon of scripture. When Jesus wrestled with the devil in his temptation in the wilderness, what did he say? Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every rima that comes from the mouth of God. And how did he apply that? Every time that volley came from Satan, the Lord used scripture to repel him and to resist him and to, and to defend himself. That was the weapon and it was absolutely effective. And these are heavy images, war, battle, demons, fiery darts, a devil is coming for you. A uh, Christian, especially a new convert in Ephesus, might say, hey man, I'm, I'm not ready for the front lines. I'm just trying to figure out who Jesus is and how to walk with him. But we are ready. You're ready for the front lines if you're a Christian because it's the Lord's strength. It's the Lord's equipment. It's the Lord's strategy. It's the Lord's power working through us. You don't have to be afraid of spiritual warfare. You just need to be ready for it. And you need to understand how it happens. But we should be realistic about it too. It's not a small thing, it's no laughing matter. Our enemy is gonna fight to the bitter end. And our involvement in the Lord's unfolding work, our involvement on the spiritual battlefield, it may lead to some heavy blows falling on us. What did Paul say to the Galatians? I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And he meant that literally. You could look at him and say, oh man, you have some enemies. <laughs> We see it on the scars on your back and all over. But this is our calling on our privilege. This is reality that the Lord says, hey, this is what's going on and I've called you, I've provided what you need. This armor's gonna fit just right, put it on. Join the fight. Devil will free, flee from you, but I'm waiting for you to volunteer. Witold Pilecki was a Polish soldier who fought the Nazis. After a while, the Poles heard some things that didn't add up when it came to what the Nazis were doing with their prisoners. And so, in 1940, Witold intentionally allowed himself to be taken to the Auschwitz concentration camp. For two and a half years, he gathered intelligence and worked to get the truth out, helped people escape. At times, Witold felt overwhelmed by his mission but he soldiered on, even once giving up his own planned escape through the sewers to an inmate who was in more imminent danger. He eventually did escape Auschwitz, and then he kept fighting the good fight. He wasn't done. He was captured again by the Germans in 1944, sent to a different POW camp. There, he cared for the younger inmates who took to calling him daddy. Witold was liberated from that prison too at the end of the war, and then there were other fights to fight, 
other battles to join, other dark forces to oppose on behalf of his homeland. I won't spoil the ending. I'll just tell you that from man's perspective, Vitold's final chapter on earth was a tragedy. From the perspective of the lives he saved and the good work he did, well, the life of the Auschwitz volunteer was a triumph of good over evil. Christian, are you ready to get in the fight? Put on your gear. Go where you're commanded. Stand in strength and victory and confidence, knowing that the Lord will do what he's promised in you and through you every day.